This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Okay, so thank you so much. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, Rafaela, and all the people who helped me to get here. And thank you to all of you for accepting the coercion of being here for your classes and getting grades for it. So that's wonderful. So as Larry was saying, my background is as a historian, and I, am, I focus on Latin American history, but also in Chicano and Chicana history, also known as Mexican-American, the Mexican-American community, and the solidarity. So the talk for today is in reference in relation to what is right now being observed, right? The Hispanic Heritage Month. So what does it mean about being um, observing this, um, this identity? Is it when we say, we use the term Hispanic Latinos, right? Are we uh, observing, are we honoring diversity or we are creating a nice little label for a very diverse community? So, and that's gonna be the talk I would like to have today. However, I would like to start because as you know, today is a very important day because in uh, 1492, October, uh, October 12th, is when Cristobal Columbus arrived to the Americas. But one of the things is, um, as perhaps some of you have heard in the news, is that there are several cities who, instead of celebrating or honoring Cristobal Columbus, they're honoring our indigenous identities. And I would like to say happy Indigenous Peoples Day, celebrating resistance, right, and resilience especially re recognizing that Washington state is a Indian country. So, and this is in reflection to the indigenous presence that we have. So I would like to start from there. Um, also, the second part I wanted to continue in is let's talk about some, uh, some numbers, some facts about the so-called Hispanic-Latino or Latina community. And so this is coming from the Pew Research Center for Social and Demographic Trends. And these are some numbers that came out of, of uh, analysis they, get, they did in 2012. So one of the things is the U.S. Hispanic population is about 54 million of Latinos living in the United States. But however, out of those 54 million, about 34 million of, the, of them is people of Mexican descent. So people of Mexican descent is the strongest presence of this community. And that has led also to creating the stereotype of Mexican as being the poster child for all Latino identities, right? Which is very problematic. But we will talk about this as we continue. The other um, figures that we I want to give you is that this perception that is 11.7 million of unauthorized immigrants that live in the United States. The perception is that out of this 11 or 12 million people who are here are uh, undocumented migrant immigrants is that they are perceived as they are uh, the Latinos, right? However, the, the, and the, the fastest, because the Latino community is the fastest growing community in the United States, is perceived that the growth of this community comes from this undocumented mi migrant, immigrants. However, it's not because the Latino, is, the Latino community is growing because of the US born Latino, not because of the undocumented immigration. That's where it's coming, the fastest growth coming from this, for this community. The other part is that the Latino population 
is characterized by a great diversity. One of the things is the perception that all Latinos are brown and mixed, like myself, right? But one of the things is that there is a 54% of this community, they identify themselves by terms such as Mexican, Cuban, Puerto Rican, Venezuelan, Colombian, Brazilian, etc. right? Which means that they have very diverse identities, very diverse histories and perceptions. So that's one of the things that the characterization of this community is diversity within the community itself. And another one is one third of this Latino identity is mixed race, which means that it doesn't fit with this binary of black and white that the United States has when it comes to cre uh, understanding identity as a race, okay? Because what, um, so the mixed race is a lot of people have multiple uh, backgrounds. They can be Latinos of uh, Asian descent, of Middle Eastern descent, of uh, Afro-descendancy, right? So they're not just indigenous and European combination. So I wanted to go over the main points that I'm gonna have for this talk. So the first thing I wanna, I'm gonna do through this talk is go over the historical background of the largest Latina and Latino communities in the US. And by those, I mean the Mexican community, the Puerto Rican community, the Central American, and the Cuban. That's not the only ones, but they are the most, um, the strongest that uh, uh, they are present here in the United States. And I'm gonna go over the history, how is that historically they had come to this country, okay? Uh, through the talk, I would like to also um, answer some questions. So what is the relationship of the Latino-Hispanic identity to race? and the race or their ethnicity. And it has a historical root to that. Um, then continue to the origins and evolution of the National Hispanic Heritage Observance, which that's what we are, what does this event, part of it, right? So how what has been its development so far? And finally, I would like to answer the question or go, um, go over the complexity of Hispanic Latino. Is it a meaningful identity at all? when we're talking about celebrating diversity, okay? So those are the four points I would like to answer through this presentation. So let's begin with some facts about your next door neighbors, and that is Latin America. First of all, Latin America as a, as a region, one of the things there are the 21 different countries that form this region, those countries that are considered part of the Latin America community. Um, the people from the, who are identified as Hispanic or Latino in the U.S. come from four regions. One of those regions is North America. And despite the perception that Mexico is Central America, it's not. Mexico is part of North America, okay? So part of the, so this region, some of these uh, communities are labeled as Hispanic and Latinos come from those born in the United States and also from Mexico. So that is for uh, North America. Central America, they come from these countries right here, this area. However, it's not just geographical because are all, of, all those countries in there except for Belize. Although Belize is part of this region, they identify as Caribbean, not as Latino, okay? The other one, in the Caribbean, the Spanish-speaking uh, countries like Puerto Rico, right? Um, Dominican Republic, and Cuba, 
but also you include Haiti as part of the Latino community, which is not only the Big Creole. And South America, but in South America, it's not all of the countries either, because it's gonna exclude uh, Guyana, Suriname, and the French Guyana, which is not part of this Latin American uh, identity, okay? So it's more complex than to say it's just part of geographical region, okay? It has also to do with a history between these countries. And another thing, so with this, in addition to this presence, is the presence of multiple indigenous communities here. So to be Latino is also, with the, the label that is being used, it also encompasses indigenous communities who have nothing to do with Latin anything or European anything, right? But they are part considered because they come from this region, they are, um, when they come into this country, they are perceived as Latinos. And so what I wanted to point out is for this area is diverse ethnic, racial, national, uh, linguistic, and religious characteristics. So it's a great internal diversity, okay? So let's begin with the history on how is that the Mexican um, uh, became part of the United States, right? First of all, these Mexican-Americans are part of this uh, nation through the Mexican-American War. So the first European language that is spoken in what is today the U.S. territory, it was in English or French, actually it was Spanish, because it was through, this was a Spanish territory, right? So with the Mexican-American War, it was take, this territory was taken and absorbed by the United States through a war, and the community, this was not an empty land, okay? There were thousands of people in here of Mexican descent. So they became Mexican-American after the um, Mexican-American War. So this perception that the Mexican is always an immigrant or the Mexican is equivalent to immigrant is not correct because as what they say is we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us, okay? So in this case, thus this idea that the construction of the Mexican has always been an immigrant, that is a construction that was created uh, more strongly in the early 1900s. But before that, it was not the Mexicans who were the immigrants, actually it were the, the people of the 13 colonies who became the immigrants into this territory. Um, so moving on to the other community, Puerto Rico. So Puerto Rico becomes an unincorporated territory to the United States as part of the Spanish-American War. Um, so after the, during the Spanish-American War, some of the territories that were taken was uh, Cuba and part of Puerto Rico. So Puerto Rico is annexed to the United States. However, Puerto Ricans were is, um, held in an ambivalent space because one of the things with them is that they became recognized as U.S. with a uh, restrictionist U.S. citizenship as part of war efforts in, during World War I. So one of the things is that in 1917, Puerto Rico was given the uh, restricted rights of citizenship which meant that they didn't have the right to vote in the United States to, get, to elect president, 
However, one of the things that we're eligible for is for being recruited to be part of the military, okay? So the citizenship was very strategic for Puerto Ricans because it came as part of a war, okay, in World War I. But the other thing too out of World War I that comes is the call for labor from Mexico, okay? Especially, you know, coming to being this war effort, the desire of the need of, uh, of labor that comes here. So in this historical moment, the, the immigrant, both the Puerto Rican as well as the Mexican are desire immigrants, right? Desire immigration to that. But by 10, but, uh, 20 years later or so, the Great Depression comes out. So while before this, they say, come on in, please come join us, you know, come, come on boys, be part of, our, of this uh, nation. Um, 20, less than 20 years later or 15 years later or so, they say, get out. We cannot, we cannot take care of you. But one of the things is out of this Great Depression is the construction of the Mexican as an immigrant. Because out of the Great Depression was the repatriation um, movement, which meant that people, there was a sending back of Mexican, Mexicans back to Mexico. But they didn't make a distinction between those who were born in the United States and those who were immigrants, right? So they will be sending everyone the perception that all Mexicans were immigrants. And um, so it just comes this uh, construction of this identity as Mexicans and immigrants. And remember that in the Mexican-American War, Mexicans were not the ones who immigrated, right? But another thing that comes out of the 1930s is that Mexican as a racial category. Mexican is not a race. Mexican is a nationality, right? As a nation state, as a nationality, means there is a great diversity within that. However, in the United States, by the uh, 1930 census, they construct this idea of Mex for Mexican. It's part of that racial category. And it's in this place where Mexican is racialized, okay? Um, so again, 10 years later, move forward, and then you get World War II. So previous to that, they say, you know, Great Depression is get out. Get the Mexicans out because we cannot take care of you. But World War II comes, and one of the things they're saying is, like, we are united. We are allies. So, you know, Americans all. So now Mexicans are perceived once again as being come on and be part of this nation, right? And welcome back. Come back. Um, this is some of the propaganda that was produced during World War II about the perception of having this alliance with Mexico, okay? And also Puerto Ricans, once again, bring back Puerto Ricans as part of the nation to build, especially going into the military and being part of the, the military forces. Um, so one of the things that comes along with, Mexico, with uh, World War II is the need for labor. So labor and the need the market and the need for labor is very important in the way that the U.S. immigration policy and the constructions of this community is developed. So the Bracero program uh, during World War II is the guest worker program. However, yes, they require new labor to come in from Mexico, but at the same time, as you can see, before they come in, they're fully 
investigated, they are inspected for diseases. So all these stereotypes and ideas that the Mexican, the, um, the Latino, what is going to be labeled later on, is, has this um, disease, is po this poverty that they need to be clean before they come in. Okay. Um, the next group that comes in to the United States is the Cubans. And the Cubans arrived into the United States, especially as part of Cold War, with the Cuban Revolution of 1959, right? Fidel Castro and Che Guevara, you've probably seen this picture of this guy somewhere, even if you didn't know his name. He's a very famous um, image. So one of the things is that Cuba is a small island um, near Florida that they uh, declared the independence of their, the Cuban Revolution. And one of the things the United States does is that opens its doors for Cuban immigrants. However, the Cuban immigrants that come within this wave of immigration, as you can tell, they're not necessarily workers. Another thing about Cuba is uh, Cuba and Puerto Rico is the strong presence of Afro-descendants, right? Which becomes a very, um, question for the United States and the racial politics. But the immigrants that are being welcomed from Cuba with this initial wave coming out of the Cuban Revolution, the majority are um, elite, light-skinned, they are welcome, and they are given a lot of benefits as coming into the United States, which is in contrast, if you think about it, the way they dealt, for example, with Puerto Ricans or with Mexicans. Okay, so, and you can see also the way today, how is that, when you think about the Cubans, who are they associated with what political party versus the Mexicans, what political party they're associated with. There also has to do in the nature of the immigration and how is that they came here. Um, so how is that the, the importance of Mexicans and the construction of Hispanics as a, um, community, as an ethnic community comes into the United States, is part of, uh, in the 1960s, one of the things is the rise of civil rights movements, right? Among them, you know, you have African Americans, you have, but also Mexican Americans who are known as Chicanos. Puerto Ricans also have their movement, the Young Lords. But Mexican Americans, one of the things by the 1960s is that the large population of them are here they, they are U.S. citizens, okay? They're not immigrants from Mexico. They're a great presence, and they're also urban spaces, not only in rural areas, but also in urban spaces due to the um, war effort type of jobs that they had. And one of the things that Kennedy, when he did, uh, when he was um, campaigning for president is that he connected with the Mexican-American community, more specifically with the movement of Cesar Chavez, which you perhaps have heard about him. So one of the things that he did is the Viva Kennedy campaign. So he was one of the first presidents to cater to this community, and he became very important in, his, uh, in the votes that he got and their re-election, and also the, uh, the perception that Politicians understood about the power of the Latino vote, something that you still hear today, especially as we are moving into the election season, right? 
the Latino vote and is, are they going to shift? You know, are they going to change the, uh, the direction of this nation, etc. But Viva, it was Kennedy, one of the things, one of the first to recognize this power for the national level. And following Kennedy's success with um, getting the support of the Mexican-American community, it follows that um, in 1968 is when they had the creation of the National Hispanic Heritage. It begins with a week. And it was signed, this is uh, in September 17, 1968, is uh, Representative Henry, Henry Gonzalez from Texas and President LBJ were signing um, this bill into recognizing the National Hispanic Heritage Week. So one of the things is the term of use Hispanic. So Hispanic, you, you, you use in, the, in media and everyday um, description the, inter, the, exchange, the interchangeable terms of Hispanic and Latino. And they mean two different things, okay? And historically, they come from different places. So the term Hispanic, it was referred mostly in this connection to this community who spoke Spanish, right? Uh, and I'm referring to Puerto Ricans, Cubans, and Mexicans. And the assumption, they also, the assumption that they were all the same people, they all speak Spanish, they all were under the domination of Spain at one point, so Hispanic would be a good term. Also that the term Hispanic, it was used within the Mexican-American community um, as a strategy to limit racism against them. Because by claiming an, a, a Hispanic identity, they were claiming an European identity. They were claiming a connection with Spain, with Europe, with whiteness, which in the hopes of being protected from being discriminated as a minority, right? So Hispanic is was gonna become institutionalized, and it begins during this period, and also is in the time of the civil rights movement that's taking place. And so where it finally institutionalized is in the 1970s U.S. Census that the term Hispanic comes as part of uh, people's choices to self-identify if they are Hispanic or not. Previous to that, there was not that term, it was not in there, okay? Um, however, this is the other, th the other one, so that's, we have gone from the 1968 to the Hispanic Heritage uh, Week. By 1988, right, 20 years later, is the creation of the Hispanic Heritage Month, which is that which we are observing right now. And the Hispanic Heritage Month comes out of a very, um, uh, interesting political moment in the sense that it's under the Reagan administration and President Ronald Reagan, his administration had a strong um, presence in Central America under the rhetoric of um, combating uh, communism, right? Which led to the creation of a, a civil, civil war in um, the development of civil wars in Central America, which ultimately led to a refugee crisis of Central America. And one of the things is that the Reagan administration was, uh, came under a lot of criticism for, for its involvement in Central America. So, like I said, Ronald, so one of the things that came out of it is that Central American refugee crisis 
brought a strong um, presence of them here. At the same time, one of the things was, in, uh, was created that he found into, uh, into law was the Hispanic Heritage Month. The one week was not enough, so what they're gonna do was September 15th, and why September 15th? Because that's when they initiate the um, independence movement towards Spain, especially, for example, in Mexico, right? Especially September 15th and September, this is days of September, right? Uh, you perhaps have heard the holiday. So it encompasses that, the, um, the independence war, and ends in October 15, because it nicely links with today, right? With the, press, the arrival of Cristobal Columbus into the Americas. So in a way, this, two, this um, month covers both independence as well as the um, encounter of multiple worlds with uh, Columbus' arrival. So that's when the Hispanic Heritage Month come in. However, what about the Latino, the Latino category? When that comes in? So Hispanic is into the 1980s and Latino as a term started appearing in the 1990s, towards the late 1990s. And part of it, the Latino category, comes out of it this criticism that Hispanic, one, it comes from the rise of indigenous activism and saying that um, when you identify as Hispanic, you are putting more emphasis to your European roots and you are ignoring your indigenous roots, okay? So Hispanic is not, um, they, they reject this term as being a term that implies colonization. Um, also that the term Hispanic does not account places like Brazil and Haiti, where they don't speak Spanish and they were not under the domination of the Spanish Empire, right? They were under Portugal and uh, France. So, and the other one is that, what do, what do we do with Afro-descendants? Afro-descendants is a strong presence for Latin America. So when they decided to start using a term like Latino with the uh, connection of Latin, right? So that with the idea of being more inclusive of this diversity that is represented in Latin America. However, Latino and his, like Hispanic, Hispanic was, has a problematic term, but Latino continues to be problematic. Why? Because although it comes out of this indigenous activism, within the term Latino, it continues to exclusion of indigenous people. Why? Because this community has nothing to do with Latin anything, right? They have no connection to Europe, their languages have no Latin base, and they're being excluded. And yet, when they cross into this country, they become recognized as Latinos, although their identity has no connection to it, okay? So the term Latino, in a way, yes, is a little more inclusive of identities like Brazil and Haiti and Afro-Latinos, but it continues to exclude original people, which are the indigenous. So it's Hispanic and Latino and meaningful identity at all for today, okay? As we are, it's being used and it's used as interchangeable. So one of the things is, let's think about the advantages of using a group identity 
So the term Latino, the term Hispanic, is used as a group, right? So one of the things that it does, think about it. If you were just simply identifying yourself as, a, as your nation, as your country, somewhere for an El Salvador, which is a very tiny uh, country in Central America, would, be, would not have um, political power or being able to advance their political interests or economic interests or their, um, their needs. In contrast, for example, a community like Mexico or Brazil, which is, they're much larger and much stronger. So one of the things that having a group identity is that collective identity makes you visible, right? It makes you visible in the United States. It makes you visible as a block group. So you have more power as a full hand than as a one finger. That's the idea behind it. So yes, Latino identity, it has its place for it. To create this group identity, it is important within this, um, within this country. The other part about the advantages of group identity is, again, the ability to advance political, economic, and cultural interests more effectively. So as a group, there are certain things that we share as a region, right? Some of the struggles about uh, economic interests, uh, having a better economic relations with the United States or uh, trade agreements with the United States, um, having better immigration policies towards this region. There are um, issues of language, right? So there are certain things that when you present yourself as a group, as an, a group identity, you become more effective in advancing this. However, the same thing that it is a advantage is also a problem. And let me tell you why it is a problem. And that is when you, um, sorry. So when going back to the ability of advancing that political and economic um, and cultural uh, interest is that only certain voices are heard. Those who are pushed more at the front. So they cannot represent, there is only certain groups that are being heard uh, on their, their interests. So there are certain groups, there are certain, um, because like I mentioned, Latin America is so diverse that it, it becomes um, blanket under um, this diversity becomes blanket under this group identity that means that only certain voices are gonna be the ones who you're gonna hear. And are those the ones who have access, especially the business, the, the uh, Latino Hispanic business community have a, has a very strong voice, right? Which is not the same, for example, for the immigrant community, right? So there are some voices that are more strong than others. So like I said, on the one hand, it's an advantage, but for some, but on the other hand, it's also a problem for others. Um, so problems with this national group identity, and that is that you probably, when you see this image, right, you assume that this is Hispanic Latino. And this used the homogenization of, we looked at 21 countries, multiple uh, ethnicities, uh, nationalities, languages, religions, until under the stereotype of Mexican. The assumption that Mexico or Mexican, this image of the, you know, the sombrero and the brown kid, that is equivalent to every Latin American country, that every people, if you are Latino, 
Therefore, you must be eating tacos, burritos, chile, right? You should be enjoying mariachi music and celebrating Cinco de Mayo. So, right? That's the, that's the perception. But if you think about it, this is an imposition of this identity in the entire Latin America. And that is very problematic, right, in creating this. Uh, so in this case, this is this problem of, that's why the, this talk is labeled, are we celebrating diversity or are we homogenizing identity? And we are doing both in a way, right? So at times, this is very strategic. For me as Mexican, yes, it's great that, you know, they're using my national identity to identify me. But if you are from Guatemala, Guatemala is not the same thing as Mexico, right? They don't have the same identity. They don't have the same culture necessarily. And they have a different history. Same thing with Argentinians or Cubans. And this is becomes offensive, right? Because their assumption that everyone looks like this, that somehow that we, the, if you're Latino, this is what you are. So that's one of the problems. But let's go to some of the myths and hatred of and bigotry that has come out of the Latino, for the Latino community, especially more late, in much later rhetoric that we have heard. Some of them is the construction of the immigrant as a criminal, right? On the one hand, this nation prides itself for being a nation of immigrants. But lately, the immigrant is equivalent to be a criminal. And the criminality is equivalent to be Latino, and more specifically, to be Mexican. And if we make the connection, then to be Mexican is associated with all Latin America, right? It's this construction that Latin America um, as a criminal, uh, immigrants as criminals. The Latino equivalent with, again, poverty, crime, the refusal to assimilate. The question that a celebration like this Right, the celebration of the observance of the Hispanic Heritage Month is this refusal of the Latinos to assimilate and to absorb um, American values. And also, the other thing is realize the racialization of Latinos as brown. That if you're Latino, you're equally brown. But for example, once again, so what, what, is, what happened to the identity of an Afro-Latino when he comes into the United States? Are they Latino or are they black? What happened if you are a um, Japanese-Brazilian and you come to the United States? Are you Japanese or are you Brazilian? Where are you? Or are you Latino, right? So this construction, this very narrow construction of Latino identity as equivalent to brown, right? The only one is, like I said, Mexican is equivalent for everything Latina or Latino, which is, as I already went over it, is very problematic. And once again, Mexicans are the poster child of undocumented immigration. And as one of the things we have seen is that um, about 40% of the people who are considered to be undocumented, they come to the United States in a visa. They don't cross the border. And, you know, by foot necessarily, most of them come in a plane. They come with a visa and they overstay their visa. And they're not just from Mexico, they're from all over the world. But the assumption if you are, if you're talking about undocumented immigration, the next label next to it is equal to Mexican, right? And right next to it, Mexican is equal to Latino. So that becomes very problematic right there. 
And that's some, there's some myths of hatred and bigotry about this. So one of the things I would like to talk about this is about the main point. So I wanted to go, I wanted to open for conversation with you guys. I wanted to, I'm just arrived to Washington State. I've been here for about seven weeks. So I would like to hear what are your perceptions, what are your ideas about what is the Latino community, what is this heritage month, what are we celebrating, should we celebrate it or not, right? And I would like to enter in conversation with all of you as audience. But I wanted to refresh again some of the main points I've been doing today. So again, I went over the historical background of the largest Latino communities in the U.S. So I went over the construction of the Mexican-American, right? How Puerto Ricans became part of the United States and the nature of their citizenship, right? That was a restricted citizenship. I talk about the presence of Cubans as they came following the Cold War, oh, sorry, the Cuban Revolution. And also talk about the presence of the Central American immigration, the refugee crisis of the 1980s. And there is uh, more recently in the 1990s, there are other groups that had come from other parts of Latin America. But at this point, I'm just gonna focus on those four. And also, once again, I talk about the relationship of the Latino Hispanic identity to race. And that is that it's a construction, right? That was constructed specifically in the 1930s that they were a race and it's not, okay? It is an ethnicity, meaning that they're based on multiple cultures and multiple identities. So we are not, however, the problem is that continues to be, we continue to be racialized. This assumption that Latinos equal to race, and it's not. So I talked about the origins and evolution of the National Hispanic Heritage Observance, and that it came out of very, very strategic political moments, right? The Hispanic Heritage Week, coming out of that historical moment, right on the, out of the civil rights movement that is coming with uh, the signing of the Hispanic Heritage Week with LBJ and later being uh, institutionalized under the Nixon administration, especially as part of this uh, gathering of or looking for votes, for political votes of US citizens. And also how it's moved into the Hispanic Heritage Month Right, as during the 1980s, um, in uh, coming out of the, that moment and that crisis of the Central American refugee crisis. And finally, I also went to this question, is Hispanic or Latino a meaningful identity at all? And I went into the pro, some of the pros, some of the cons about it. That yes, it's useful in certain moments, but it's also very problematic. So we are doing, in a way, we are doing both. We are both celebrating diversity, but we are also uh, homogenizing great diverse um, identities in this group, right? So, and I would like to end actually right now with a quote by a Mexican-American activist, Cesar Chavez, who said, we need to help students and parents cherish and preserve the ethnic and cultural diversity that nourishes and strengthens this community and this nation. And that was something that Cesar Chavez says as part of the civil rights, the Mexican-American civil rights movement that comes out of the 1960s. So I would like to open it right now for conversation with you. Okay. 
Um, I have a, I have a, Mike, thank you so much. Wow, that was so informative. Wow. Um, yeah, lots to think about. I have a mic, and I need some exercise, so I'll be the runner. And I think I already extra points, too. Yeah, yeah. So let's open it up. What are your questions? What are your comments? Um, let's have a conversation. I think uh, regarding your question of uh, whether this should be something that's celebrated, the Hispanic or Latino, Latina Heritage Month, I think for me, it, um, although with some of these word, words it brings up, um, or these categories it brings up a lot of questions on who are we exclu excluding or including, um, as a whole, I think the dialogue is important. Looking at, um, I mean, even having events like this, where we can talk about what the history is behind these words. Um, and so that's kind of my two cents because, I mean, without that, I think the tendency, I mean, for myself as a white male American is to kind of think of Latino or Hispanic or Mexican as almost a blank blanket um, term for Central and South America. Um, so that's my comment. And then if I could ask a quick question. Um, I'm interested um, politically in things that happen, so I'd love to get your take on looking at, um, and I don't know if this is your area of interest or expertise, but looking at Cuba and some of the recent developments with, uh, between relations um, among the US and Cuba, maybe you can comment on that and from like a, a cultural or a, or a Latino perspective, how, that, how you see that imp uh, impacting communities going forward. Yes, I think, thank you very much for your uh, input. And yes, I agree though, we do need to recognize the strong uh, presence and contribution of this community, this community and make it plural. And um, about Cuba, I think Cuba is one of those special cases in Latin America, right? Because it's history and it has become a lot about uh, the U.S. ego that at such a tiny island, right? kicked the butt for, for during the 1959, in a way. And that if they were not able to um, infiltrate them or control them, that they had the developed cast for regiment for a long time. So for example, the opening, the rhetoric of the United States towards Cuba has been that of come and we welcome you because you are politic, they are labeled as political refugees. Right? The, they're immigrants from Cuba. They're perceived as political refugees. They are running away from an um, oppressive system and coming to the United States as a system of freedom. Right? So it's a very political charged rhetoric in how the Cuban American and the Cuban is constructed in this country, for one. So in how are they gonna, right now with the, the new relations, I think it's also changing and connecting to that rhetoric and saying that ultimately is this nation, you know, with this idea of freedom and uh, democracy that um, we're of the, the ones that dominated over this uh, communist socialist uh, regimen, right? So I think Cuba plays a very interesting, um, anomaly 
in the way that the United States has dealt with the rest of Latin America and how uh, Latin American immigrants are constructed in the United States. Because other countries, for example, uh, the refugee crisis of Central America, it has been such a struggle. They also deserve uh, political uh, help as political refugees, and yet so many of them have been denied of that, right? So I hope that kind of answers some of your questions. You have any you have any sense at all of Cuban American reaction to recent developments? Not quite sure about Cuban Americans, but um, it's interesting to see, for example, um, if you see that in the Republican Party, right, we have uh, two uh, candidates or possible candidates for the presidency of Cuban descendancy, and I'm talking about uh, uh, Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, right? and the rhetoric they have towards immigration. But you have to remember how is that that community, how is that they came into this country under different labels, right? Mm -hmm. So their attitude and the response towards this uh, undocumented immigration of immigrant re immigration reform is different because they have a different history. Right? Questions? Oh. Mm -hmm. Um, so I have just kind of a dilemma that I thought about, curious if you could comment on. So with the Hispanic or Latino identity, uh, that seems to be perpetuated in many ways by mainstream media. It's, you can click on the Hispanic or Latino tab on a news site, et cetera. It's how we um, you know, keep up with the news or culture, what's going on. Um, or like NPR has, what is it, Latino USA, right? So when it's the media that uh, kind of gives us our terms that we use and how we talk about political or cultural issues. Um, but at the same time, it's through the media that political and cultural issues are heard. So you already addressed this dilemma, but considering the extra element that it's the same, we're talking about the media in both instances, mm -hmm. how would you, okay, so I guess this is a two-part question. Is there a different a phrase or term that you would suggest or just not suggest a term at all and only, I mean, because there's a number of identities involved. Yeah. So you're maybe uh, indigenous Guatemalan who doesn't speak Spanish is, yeah. should we just ditch a homogenous identity at all? And then how do we deal with that in the media? Well, Long question, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no problem. First of all, in my case, when I, I don't think you, you, you can, you're not going to get rid of terms like Hispanic or Latino because they're so ingrained into the narrative and the cultural understanding of this community. And like I said, it's also very effective to have this group identity politically. But when, in my case, when I want to refer to this community, I always said um, Latino and indigenous, right? So because I always recognize indigenous because indigenous is part of my own background, right? My great-grandparents were indigenous. And so for me, always reckon that recognition. But that's you know, my own personal, um, the way I approach, for example, when I talk in my classes and I talk about Latin America or the Latino identity, Latino and indigenous, to make that reference. Um, but you know, about talking about the media and the way that, so how do we get our knowledge about this identity? How do we know about Latinos? And you pointed out in something that I had a discussion earlier um, uh, during the with the faculty in 
blanket is middle class white America, right? And that is how they construct, how, that's where you get, most of us get our ideas about the Latino community. But one of, and the way, way I've been using this um, analogy is with ethnic food. You know, like the way that ethnic food, like for example, Chinese food, right? Is in the United States, Chinese food, their flavors are adapted to the taste buds of the United States, of Americans. When you go to China, it doesn't taste like anything. You kind of find orange chicken in China, right? <laughs> That's an American construction. Just like when you go to Mexico, um, burritos are not part of Mexican food. Now they're being more commercialized, but burrito is not a Mexican food. Same thing with identity, with uh, Latino identity, right? It has been nicely packaged and translated for your consumption, for your understanding, right? So it's being adapted to the taste buds of the United States, to the understanding, and especially to fit within that dynamic that we have of understanding in the United States about how do we understand race, and it's to that binary of black and white. So what they do with, so what do you do with all this mixed identity, with all this, um, you know, mestizaje, misogyny that is happening? So what you do is you package it very nicely into a brown stereotype, right? So it fits right in between, very nicely. Um, so that's part of it, nice. And it's just gonna be very difficult. But one of the things is, as you see, is change taking place slowly. Why? Because as I showed earlier, in the 1990s, for example, when they have the celebration and the posters for Hispanic Heritage Month or week, whatever it was, they would always use the Mexican poster child, right, as part of it. Today, if you perhaps went to the celebration that they had in uh, downtown Spokane, or if you look Hispanic Heritage Month celebration, you would see the presence of multiple flags. So now there is a movement, there is an awareness of expanding this identity of Latino as much more than just Mexican. Thank you for the presentation. And uh, I would like to ask that if we uh, homo homogenize the diverse um, ethnicity that you mentioned here as a Mexico, uh, Mexican, so what um, impact it has on the, in the in, uh, in Genesis? people like you mentioned? Yeah. People? Well, for one is that they're excluded. Uh -huh. The other thing is that they are perceived as the experience of the indigenous communities, like I said, is an experience of resistance and resilience that they continue to be present. And um, so when we just simply create this idea that everyone is mixed or mixed you know, the racial mixing that we have, then to eliminate what is so central to be a part of Latin America. And mm. that's one of our roots, right? Or many roots, because it's not just a indigenous community, but there are multiple of them. And we need to recognize them. And just like here, right, the struggle of Native American communities and to be recognized as part of this, that they are the original people of this, this place. I see. Thank you. One more. Yeah. Uh, what are the important points of uh, learning diversity as a student like me? I see. Oh, so my, uh, 
or from your perspective, of my, course. My guess is that you're international? Yes, I am. Okay, I'm, I'm just making assumptions. Thank you. So one of the things um, is understanding, for example, when I came to the United States an as an international student, and over time I have become a um, domestic minority. Somewhere in there, <laughs> I got transitioned between one and the other. Right? When I came into the United States as uh, from Mexico and I came to learn English, I was placed into ESL classes, right? And um, I'm placed into these groups to be shared between people from, from China, from India, from the Middle East, from all these places. And um, this later now is as I'm perceived a lot of times as Mexican-American at some times, other times it's just as part of the domestic diversity. What is important for international students, in this case, um, to learn about is to challenge this narrative of U.S. national identity that is exported globally as being white elite, right? Because when I came to the United States, the assumption I had and the, the image, how do we get our knowledge about the United States abroad? It's through films, right? Movies and, and TV and uh, uh, popular culture, music, and these images that we have is of wealth. And the poster child for this wealth is always a white family, for example. And this assumption that when you come to the United States that everyone is blonde, blue eyes, right? And then you get here and you recognize that it's so much more diverse and so much more powerful, right, to be here. So I think it's part of it engaging, um, learning about this diversity to engage not only with the United States, uh, but uh, with the larger communities that are in it, and to change that narrative, right, and be part of it. When talking about um, indigenous populations, I'm, I'm, you know, you, you talk about moving through different spaces, uh, you as an indigenous person in, in Mexico. Yeah. Talk a bit about um, your awareness of how indigenous populations across borders may connect. For instance, the Navajo, the, the, you know, the Cherokee, the Arapaho, you know, other indigenous populations here. Is there a connectivity uh, in terms of an indigenous experience that may transcend some of the geopolitical divisions that exist? Yeah. There's this perception, right, that pan-indigenous identity, pan meaning that there is this global indigenous identity that's not just including the ones of the Americas, but also including the indigenous communities from like Australia, right? So this idea that somehow the experience of the indigenous communities has been of that of colonization and the process of resistance uh, as one being one of the things that connects our experience across. However, as indigenous populations are grown and developed within nation states, that also means that they have different experiences and different needs. For example, uh, you know, you have Native Americans in the United States, what is known as First Nations in Canada, what is known as original people in Mexico. Yes, we share this experience of, of colonization and resistance, but at the same time, the way that each nation state has dealt with those indigenous populations has been different, has been different in how they uh, recognize them or don't recognize them. So there is, yes, there is a sense of pan-indigeneity, uh, pan to say it as such, of unity, but there is also an experience that these geopolitical borders matter, 
and how each one is developed politically. What is your take on recent like build the wall political rhetoric regarding <laughs> immigration? Do okay. you do you I believe this is yes. history repeating itself or is just a loud minority uh, let opinion? Me let me answer that. I have this. I, let me answer that with um, some political cartoons that I found. And uh, so let me answer that too with that because I knew it was coming. Um, so let me tell you a political cartoon that I got. Um, from, uh, let me see, Florida today for 2005. And this is why the way that the take that political concern that Native Americans and indigenous people would take about building the wall. And that is, right? <laughs> Thus, um, they say, this is the pilgrims, that they are building a wall because too many of us enter illegally and don't want to learn the language and assimilate into the culture. That's the pilgrims talking to the Native Americans, right? But this idea of the wall is not new to uh, the rhetoric with, United, um, with Mexico and United States. That also came with Chinese immigration, right? This idea, especially uh, with the Chinese Exclusion Act of the 1890s, in the sense that building a wall and creating a wall to keep this undesirable immigrants out, right? Did it work? If you think about it, this rhetoric, it changes, it responded to the market. Today, do we wanna build a wall with China? Not at all. We wanna establish you know, economic connections. We wanna, how many universities are targeting right now uh, Chinese international students to come, right? As one of the, that's one of the main groups they're coming as international students to academic institutions. We want to establish uh, economic trade with them. But that was not the same rhetoric they have in the 1890s, right, about this wall and this separation of keeping those who are undesirable at that historical moment. And as I mentioned, I had looked through, the, through my uh, presentation, the way that the attitude towards Mexican immigration has shifted through history. There were times that say, come in get out, come back, get out, right? I'm back and forth, back and forth. So it's like, um, so one of the things, and the same thing, it was not just towards the Chinese or towards um, the, um, the Indians telling the pilgrims, but also came in the 1920s, right, with Eastern and Southern <coughs> European immigrants, especially those who were perceived as being undesirable because of being Jewish and being communists or being anarchists and we want to keep them out at that moment. But the way that for Latin America or in this case, in my case, for Mexico, right? The way that we see and we understood the US immigration policy is I think this um, political cartoon really, um, uh, it does an excellent job, right? Stop immigration but help wanted at the same time. So we are in the other time saying, is he a schizophrenic? And they're saying it's like borderline, right? <laughs> because we get that double narrative constantly. Come in, get out, come in, get out. You're welcome. We celebrate you, but at the same time, you're undesirable. We're back and forth, and we just don't decide, right? So hopefully this historical narrative will change. Uh, so often when I talk to people about this topic, um, their usual response is like complaining, like I've never done anything personally to 
marginalize or discriminate against a Latino or, or Hispanic person. And I think that sort of dehumanizes those people and keeps them at arm's length so then I don't have to worry about them because I've never done anything to you know harm them. And usually my response to those people is, well, I've never been called a threat to American values before. So the important part of this month is like telling people's stories and finding out what it's like to be them and then it's harder to dehumanize those people. Um, so my question is, have you ever experienced those type of people or had those conversations? And if you have, what is your response to those people? My response to that, um, yes, I mean, being in the, the nature of uh, research I do and being in a classroom, like, you know, teaching to very diverse populations, a lot of times um, I always get that student who wants to talk to me after class, right, and walk with me to, the, uh, to my office and wants to have this conversation and like, well, you know, I don't understand it kind of thing. But a lot of times my response to it is that um, a lot of our um, sometimes bigotry comes from misunderstanding, comes from lack of knowledge. Uh, so for me, teaching history, given this kind of presentation, is my response to that, to bring in awareness, to open a conversation, and to perhaps get a different narrative. So a lot of times it's, I don't take it personal because I can understand where are you getting your knowledge, right? How are you being constructed, that knowledge? And to me, I don't see it as like it's coming from a place a lot of times of ignorance. Um, and we are all, we are all ignorant of many things, right? And just like they're trying to learn sometimes, or they don't understand my community, I don't understand a lot of the, a lot of communities in here, right? So that's my response to it. I'm, I'm just uh, wanting to, you know, we're a Christian institution, and uh, we talked about this a little earlier today. But uh, share, if you will, from your perspective, um, um, we identify as an institution that's evangelical, uh, largely, but we're also reformed and, and um, ecumenical. But from a, from a Mexican or Latino, Latina perspective, can you um, kind of share a bit about uh, evangelicalism and the role that evangelical Protestant church in North America has played in... Um, the historical conditions and development south of the uh, U.S. border. I mean, yeah. talk about that and maybe even other emergent Christian streams of theology that maybe have responded to that. Yes, of course. So one of the things is the relationship of Latin American, um, Mexico and Central America, for example, towards, um, uh, like you said, Protestantism or different branches of Protestantism is very, uh, it, it's, um, it's problematic in many ways. Because for one, you, the stereotype is that Latinos are mostly Catholics, right? And that we are, is that, so Catholicism is that very strong religious presence in uh, Latin America, like for example in Mexico. However, in the case of places, for example, Central America, and let me focus more specifically in one country, and that is Guatemala. And the ways that in Guatemala during the 1960s and 1970s, the rise of liberation theology, which came out of um, the um, Catholicism and people who with 
working side by side with indigenous and marginalized communities and wanted to help and do the work with the people, right? They wanted to um, serve as the voice for those marginalized communities. However, during that period, they were labeled as communists, okay? And one of the things that was used was um, in the case of, as I mentioned earlier, Ronald Reagan funded, um, through his presidency, funded a lot of uh, Protestant churches to go into Central America, Guatemala, and other places to go and give um, financial help and relief to these areas as a way to stand in contrast to the communist, the liberation theology movement, right? So one of the things that creates with this is that Catholicism, in this case, liberation theology was constructed as being the enemy. But when, um, for example, one of the presidents of Guatemala, Rios Montt of the 1980s, he's still in trial today for uh, human rights abuses. It was under his presidency that the largest genocide happened in Guatemala. And he was the first um, president of uh, Protestant, um, Protestant religious identity that came into Latin America. So one of, but he was also funded by the United States, right? So Protestantism, when you have to think also that Catholicism is so interconnected with everyday life in Latin America, especially with indigenous communities, right? The celebration of this community celebration, for example, um, Day of the Death, is a combination of both indigenous and Catholicism. However, when you get some ideas of Protestantism where they reject this tradition, also creates a fracture in the community in saying, so there are certain communities that start rejecting the tradition and start associating with Protestantism. So it creates, it's a very complicated space. So Protestantism in some times has been used as a political tool to of colonization and domination in some of these areas. So it's not always has been a wonderful relation that we have right, between the communities. But in today, um, you mentioned that Protestant Christianity is among the more rapidly growing. Yeah, so Protestant, yeah, Protestantism yeah. is the fastest growing uh, religious group in uh, Latin America, in Mexico. Um, you know, they talk about the crisis of the Catholic Church especially because the Catholic Church hasn't been able to um, change. There are certain things that they're very uh, um, difficult in adapting to the changes of the modern world. So Protestantism has been a very fast growing. So with that growth, does that growth in Protestant uh, Christianity, uh, is that indicative of a different posturing or response or reaction to indigenous uh, theological streams? Or um, has there been a transformation in terms of the, um, the role of the Protestant church in uh, perpetuating kind of dominant social political policy? I mean, what's, to what do you attribute the Protestant growth, I guess, is the question. Well, um, okay, so religion is not necessarily my field, but right, I, can, I right. can tell you that some of the stuff I have read um, as larger studies of this, and what is saying that 
some of the main promoters of Protestantism have been women, right? Because of um, the limitation of drinking. So for women, it can be very um, useful to have a religious or religion that allows them to um, limit the use of alcohol, the alcohol, alcohol, alcoholism yeah. in, uh, in this community, which, you know, um, so much. But, and also that, um, for, you know, Protestantism has been um, taken by some of these communities because it has created an alternative, you know, this idea of they, they can express their own understanding of what uh, spirituality is. So uh, Pentecostalism is very strong in Guatemala, for example, but it has its very strong indigenous influence to it, right, for the local. So it's this connection and almost like this homegrown Pentecostalism, if that makes sense, and how it has been, how it's evolving out of this area. Mm -hmm. Are you sure you're not a church historian? Okay, okay, thank you. Any other questions? Okay, well, uh, thank you. Um, let's thank our guest.